Hi, this is Ken Robinson. Get ready for a great conversation. But remember, every Tuesday, there's a new edition of Audio Antiques from the K-Rob Collection, featuring highlights from the golden age of American radio on many of these same podcast platforms. Welcome to the Ken Robinson Podcast. Get ready for conversation and information from the people who are making a difference. Hosted by veteran Hall of Fame radio and television journalist, Ken Robinson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for calling up my podcast and welcome to all our listeners in the United States, Australia, Germany, and around the world. On this show, we're going to explore blockchain. It's the backbone behind cryptocurrency, but it could become as impactful as the Internet. Also, television. It's one of the greatest forms of communication. But who invented TV as we know it today? We're going to find out. And lastly, we'll get advice about how to start a new business with a top entrepreneur. It's all coming up right after this break. Make Coinbase your home base for cryptocurrency trading. Coinbase supports a growing list of assets, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. You can count on Coinbase for safety. Crypto stored on their servers is covered by insurance. Coinbase will pay you to start trading and to watch their instructional videos so you can earn while you learn. Get all the details at krobcollection.com and you'll discover that Coinbase is easy to use trusted, and secure. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Ken Robinson. A few years ago, cryptocurrency took the world by storm. Suddenly, it gave people around the world the ability to trade digital cash without the help, or as some would say, the interference, from governments, banks, and the international monetary system. But what do Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, Digibyte, Litecoin, and others have in common? It's blockchain, a system that makes digital money possible. And blockchain is now starting to affect our everyday lives. On the line with us from Washington, D.C. is Gerard Dachet, who is executive director of the Government Blockchain Association. Gerard, what's the purpose of the Government Blockchain Association? Is really to let leaders in government that are working on blockchain solutions to share with each other how they're using blockchain, uh, what some of the challenges are, how they're overcoming it. Uh, so, for example, we've got folks in, um, in Utah and West Virginia that have already implemented blockchain in voting. And um, in conversations with them, they they share with us, you know, some of the some of the challenges they faced and 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 how they overcame it. And I just thought, wow, this is really is critical information. So folks throughout government, at local, state, national, international levels, they all need to hear this, right, to find out, uh, you know, how to use this technology and how what what the risks are and and uh, and just how you know essentially to bring to you know, the rising tide raises all ships to to share that information amongst government um, folks. Wow, that's interesting. Two states already using blockchain voting. That's about the first uh, one of the first 
practical applications I've heard of blockchain since uh, Bitcoin. Oh, Shazam! Listen, uh, we got a lot. I mean, there, there's so much stuff going on. For example, one of what, one of the panels that we have is going to be on voting. We've got we've got a whole bunch of different panels, but um, one of the guys who's going to be on the panel, he's uh, actually working with uh, down in Guatemala. And they've had some real serious problems with election integrity uh, in Central America. So uh, they've, they've actually uh, created systems where um, the, the, the votes are actually recorded on a blockchain so any of the citizens can validate and verify the vote counts. Um, and it's, I mean, they're using phenomenal technologies and, and recording the data on multiple different blockchains. I mean, there's, there's so many phenomenal things going on uh, all around the world. It's, it's, it's really incredible. Now, blockchain first came, I guess, to the public uh, attention uh, when uh, these cryptocurrencies started up, Bitcoin being the most popular. For those who aren't familiar exactly what blockchain is, and we've, we've had trouble explaining it to, to people who, <laughs> who aren't uh, tech savvy, what exactly is blockchain? Well, you know, the funny thing is blockchain is actually very, very simple, right? But let me give you, before I answer, let me give you a quick analogy. When the internet came about, right, somebody had this idea and they said, you know what, I can send a message from my computer directly to your computer without having to go through a third party, like the U.S. mail, the postal service, the, the newspaper, whatever. And, and that simple idea, right, of, of sending information from peer to peer, right, that really tran transformed the world, right? We, we never thought in those days, right, when the most the wildest application was email, right? We never thought that one day we would do our online banking and dating and Christmas shopping, right, <clears throat> on, this, on this new technology. So blockchain is really about, <clears throat> we're, we're, I, I believe blockchain is the most transformative technology in human history because what it does is it allows us to move value from person, from point to point without going through a third party, Right. And so where, where the Internet allowed us to essentially take a message and, and essentially make a copy of it, right? So if I created an email, I could send you, you'd have a copy, and I'd have a copy. Blockchain allows me to send you something, and now you have it, and I don't, right? And that simple idea will transform the world in even more ways than the Internet did, right? But to, but to answer your question, what, what blockchain is, very simple. Blockchain essentially is a ledger right, that identifies uh, ownership, and it's on many, many different computers at the same time. So if I'm going to take any kind of an asset, take, take a Bitcoin, for example, that ledger says that asset belongs to me, and I broadcast to all the computers that that asset now belongs to you. All those computers update their records. Now everybody in the world knows that that asset now moves from me to you without having a bank or a third party essentially identify the change in assets. So all the blockchain really is, it's a ledger that identifies um, in records, information that's shared on many, many computers. And, um, and those computers come to consensus on who the ownership of those different uh, assets are. So Bitcoin being the, the first, but now people can, can move, um, you know, titles of, of land, uh, any kind of ownership, any kind of uh, any kind of asset um, across this ledger, and so you, and the impact of that is going to be is going to be totally world changing. So you can transfer assets between two parties without anybody else affecting that that transfer. Is that correct? That's correct. And since the record is is uh, captured on so many different computers at the same time, 
it becomes virtually impossible to to uh, uh, to, to to fake it or alter it or, or change it. So, in the with the with votes as an example, um, if I go ahead and register my vote on on the blockchain and it's copied on thousands of computers, if anybody tries to change the vote or say, well, no, that the votes didn't actually work out that way, they they literally have to change it on thousands of computers at the same time, making it virtually um, virtually impossible to tamper with it. Wow. So could we think of blockchain as maybe accounting software? No, it, it's, it, think of it more as a protocol, right? So just the Internet is basically a protocol, right? The Internet is is a set of agreements that, <clears throat> that different computers use to communicate with each other. Blockchain is essentially, is, it's really just an idea, and there's a million different uh, implementations of it, right? Just like there's a million different implementations of, of using the Internet, right? So you can use a block, there are, there are blockchains that can be used for medical records. There's blockchains that can be used for you know, uh, intellectual property. So, for example, I can record the fact that I wrote this song or I wrote this book. I can put that on the blockchain, and everybody knows that I'm the author, and it would be impossible for anybody to dispute it. So the security aspect of it is really probably the number one benefit, right? Right. So so here's what's really crazy about the security. It, um, it, It completely changes the paradigm, not just the security, but almost of everything, right? Because our old security paradigm is, Let's take all of this information, put it in one source, right, and put these big walls around it and not let anybody who's not supposed to get in there get in there, right? The problem is if there's a breach, and we've had lots of those breaches, somebody gets in there and they get to keep everything, right? In a blockchain space, we say, hey, let's take this information. Let's put it everywhere, right, so that if anybody tries to alter or tamper with it, everybody can know, and that way it's impossible for anybody to, to tamper with the data. So, and if any if anybody ever breaks in, they get that one record. They don't get because it's distributed. They don't get the whole thing. What in the what about in the case of a disaster? Let's say you know we think of uh, public records or whatever you know things written on paper or in books or, or or you know traditional ledgers. They're stored in a building where people only authorized people can get to it. What if it burns down? You know, <laughs> those records are lost. That doesn't happen in blockchain, right? Right, it doesn't because it, those records are kept on fifteen thousand different computers. Well, what other other applications do you th- think that there will be for blockchain? You know, we see cryptocurrency. Now we're hearing about voting. Very important that voting uh, is secure. What other uh, applications uh, do you think might be possible? Oh my gosh! <clears throat> well, one of our member companies, so, so the, the Government Blockchain Association, right? GBAglobal.org. We're a membership organization of people. And organizations, but one of our members um, uh, out of the Middle East, they actually are doing blood donations and organ donations on the blockchain. Um, there's people doing identity management on, on the blockchain, supply chain management. Um, the if blockchain only applies to um, business processes that involve the moving of a value or an asset. So every business process, whether you're talking about licensing, permitting, whether you're talking about contract management, grants, uh, whether you're talking about literally any transaction that involves anything of value, blockchain's got an application. Okay. Literally, it's, total, it's a total game changer. Mm. Now, can blockchain be hacked? I mean, I remember a few years ago there was uh, 
uh, we heard about uh, Bitcoin, some uh, uh, millions of dollars in Bitcoin disappearing because somebody got into the system. Well, um, it's it's kind of like cash, right? <clears throat> um, if somebody steals your keys, right, your username and password, and gets in and takes your money, they've got it. It's just like cash, right? But nobody... Nobody, um, to my knowledge, has ever been able to hack the blockchain itself. But what they have been able to do is we're in this quasi place right now where um, uh, people aren't necessarily used to managing their own, I'll call them accounts, right, for lack of a better word. So currently we're in a situation where there are these, these things called exchanges, right, or hosted wallets or hosted accounts where I'll go to a company that looks and feels a lot like a bank. Right, I'll let them manage my keys, right? Uh, because I'm not quite, I'm not quite ready or used to doing that myself. So when those exchanges get hacked, right, and somebody breaks into those exchanges because they're still centralized, um, people can steal the money out of those exchanges. But as we move to the space where people are managing their own keys, again, if somebody steals your keys, it's just like they're stealing your cash. You can't do anything about it, right? Um, but uh, but the blockchain itself has never been hacked. Now, what if you, you know, what if a user loses their keys? You know, they keep their keys to themselves, and they didn't tell, you know, anybody else what, you know, what the password or the keys were. That's lost too, right? Uh, right. So, so what's important to understand is <clears throat> this technology is still very young and immature, right? And so, just like in the early days of the automobiles, there was a lot of sort of problems with uh, automobiles, right? Um, and a horse might have been a better uh, solution. So we're still, but over time, the, the automobile industry got better and better, and the road systems and the infrastructure. So where we are right now, if you lose your keys, right, there's really not a lot of, there's no recourse. But I do believe that as a mature, as a technology matures, right, there's been, we're, we're going to figure out what these problems are in the technology and come up with, uh, with solutions. But the technology really is, um, I mean, the, the first, instance of the, the first instance of the word blockchain was really in 1991 and then the first really major app was in with bitcoin in 2008 so um it's still a very young technology absolutely now 20 years ago the internet didn't look anything <laughs> like it does now and we weren't doing nearly the stuff that we do with the internet today 20 right. years from now what do you think uh the blockchain will look like and and what will it how will it be woven into our daily lives? Have you ever heard of the Chinese bamboo tree? Yeah. So uh, the Chinese bamboo tree, you plant the seed in the ground and, and uh, you water it and you fertilize it. And, and for five years, you see nothing, right? You, you, you know, and a lot of people had all these ex- high expectations for blockchain and, and they didn't see any projects. And so they, a lot of them have sort of, you know, kind, kind of gone their way. But the Chinese bamboo tree, for five years, it grows underground. And then in its fifth year, it grows 90 feet in six weeks. And that's what's happening with blockchain right now. So all of the, all the activity you see in blockchain is really the infrastructure. It's really the root system, right? So blockchain um, application development uh, companies are, are, are coming together. And, and folks are trying to figure out the regulatory environments. And, and uh, all of this sort of uh, the, 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 the training of blockchain developers, right? All of that stuff is happening right now um, in the root system. And and five years from now, this thing will explode onto the scene. The problem is for most governments, 
they may not be ready for it. And so, for example, if you and I are doing a transaction peer-to-peer and it doesn't go through a bank, right, the bank can't report it to the government, right? And the government, as of 1972, they, um, uh, they with the Bank Secrecy Act, they basically um, deputized the financial system to be an arm of the U.S. government, right, which, which, is, uh, which is what the government uses to influence, monitor, and control. But when we start doing peer-to-peer transactions, right, <clears throat> and the government completely loses visibility into those transactions. The government still has a responsibility to perform its governance and oversight, but a major tool that it's been relying on for the last 30, 40 years essentially might get kicked out from underneath them. So governments are going to have to figure out new ways to essentially perform their legitimate functions if the concept of centralized financial systems essentially is taken out from underneath them. And, and that's why it's important for us to try to reach out to governments right now to help them understand what, what this is, right, you know, what's coming, how it impacts them, and the types of things that they can do to manage this transition well. Now, is there a place uh, or, or a way government leaders, business leaders, or even uh, young people who are interested in blockchain technology, is there a way they can reach out and actually touch it and, and use it now and get used to it and acclimate it to it and see how it's going to be useful to them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the first thing I would say with, with regard to anybody that wants to learn about it, uh, if they go to our site, gbaglobal.org, we're free for anybody in government to, to join and participate. We've got over 50 working groups. We've got, um, uh, we've got over 15,000 people that are connected through about 100 different chapters around the world. So anybody in government can join GBA for free. Right. Students, I think it's, you know, students and other folks can join also. Um, and I would say that they, <clears throat> they join, they connect, right? And like I said, we've got, we got working groups for everything from, um, you know, identity management, cannabis, supply chain, um, uh, artificial intelligence. And all they got to do is connect to these different working groups and they can start meeting with and talking to people um, and getting connected with real-life applications and use of blockchain. Wow. And what's your website? www.gbaglobal.org. There's basically a digital race by different communities around the world to become the, the blockchain you know, center of excellence. Uh, in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is home to many um, uh, cryptocurrency millionaires because they, they've made changes to their, um, uh, uh, to their uh, tax policies. So if you make money uh, on capital gains from cryptocurrency, you don't have to pay capital gains tax in Puerto Rico, right? And so <clears throat> there's, a, you know, Dubai. Uh, we just came back from Abu Dhabi. We met with a bunch of folks from the Dubai um, uh, authorities there. That, that, uh, Western, there's, there's places all over the country that are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to become the, the blockchain center of excellence. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the... A lot of the innovation have, has moved offshore, so a lot of it has moved to uh, Singapore, uh, Malta, um, you know, different places uh, internationally because of the regulatory environment here in the U.S. And that's something that, that U.S. lawmakers are looking at because they, they need to protect the integrity of the financial system, but yet at the same time, that same, those same restrictions are driving a lot of innovation outside of the country. And so that's, that's one of the things that the Congressional Blockchain Caucus um, is looking at they're they're looking at a bunch of regulations to, to try to to try to bridge that gap, but but it's a challenge. 
I can imagine. So blockchain is coming, and it's going to change everything forever. Blockchain is, to date, the most transformative technology uh, that we've seen. It, it builds on top of all the others. So just like the Internet was the most transformative technology up to that point, I think blockchain is the next, the next most transformative technology. Thanks so much for joining us. Gerard Dachet, Executive Director of the Government Blockchain Association. Up next, who invented television? I will answer that question right after this. Welcome back. It's easy to say that the invention of electronic television revolutionized communications. For the first time, it was possible to transmit live moving images and sound in real time together, becoming a window on the world for billions of people. Experiments on electronic television began as early as 1897, but in 1927, someone created the first practical system at their laboratory in San Francisco. That person was Philo Farnsworth. In 1928, Farnsworth conducted what is believed to have been the first public demonstration of electronic television transmitting a three-and-a-half-inch image of his wife, Pim, and the rest was history. Thirty years later, electronic television had become a household appliance, but few people remembered the man who created the first practical system. In 1957, Philo Farnsworth made a rare TV appearance on the CBS network game show, I've Got a Secret, where celebrities would try to determine the secret that the guest was hiding. And as you will hear, nobody was able to figure out what it was, even though they were making their living by working on the medium he created. Hosting the show was entertainer and comedian Gary Moore. All right, now may we have our next contestant, please? Now, we're not going to identify this contestant panel because to identify him would be to tip off his secret. We will call him simply Dr. X. Now, Doctor, if you will whisper your secret to me, we will show it at the same time to the folks out there. Now, wait a minute. There, there is even more. All right, to help to classify Dr. X's secret, I'll tell you what concerns something that he did, and we'll start with Bill Cullen, please. The name Dr. X uh, always reminds me of those motion pictures like the mysterious uh, machine of Dr. X or something like that. Yeah. You didn't make any of those pictures, did you, Doctor? Uh, you didn't well, make any uh, of those particular movies. No. no. <laughs> yeah, Dr. X, is this something you did recently? Uh, well, I'm still working on it, yes. Mm -hmm. Is it something you did and are doing then in the uh, normal course of your work? Yes. Let me say, Bill, lest we mislead you, however, that the original work on this was not done recently. It's a continuing action, but the secret as stated was, is not, uh, was not done recently. Is there any object connected with this secret then, Dr. X? Uh, well, uh, yes, I think you, I, I'm quite sure there's an object. Do doctors use this object? Uh, yes, it's been used in surgery. Is this some kind of a machine that might be painful when it's used? Uh, uh, yes, sometimes it's most painful. Sometimes it's most painful. $20 down and $60. You're a wise man. $20 down and $60 to go. And we go to Jane Meadows, please. 
then uh, if I gather right, Dr. X, you have been engaged in some kind of experimental work, which is still continuing, is that right? Uh, that's right, yes. Do you work in any kind of a laboratory or a place like that? Yes. Would this remotely or in any way be connected with psychiatric cases? Uh, I'm, well, no, not especially. Not. It would be more in the in, in very rare instances, it's been known to cause a few, but that really isn't the, <laughs> it really isn't the purpose of it. So let's say no. Okay? Um, there seems to be a great deal of laughter answering these questions. Would, could I assume, however, that what you are working on could be considered a blessing to mankind? Uh, I think, generally speaking, that it's been a blessing, yes. It is a blessing, or it has been a blessing, you say? It uh, has been and is. Do you uh, use any little animals, mice, rats, or anything, in your experimental work? <coughs> Rabbits well, or anything? Uh, I have used them, yes. But I think it would be misleading. <coughs> you think what, sir? Misleading, too. Yes, I think it would be misleading in the, in the sense in which the question was asked. $40 down and $40 to go, and we go to Henry Morgan. So let's forget the rats and the mice. Uh, doctor, uh, would it help me, or anybody else, to know what kind of doctor you are? Uh... Why, my, uh... Well, let, make him guess. Make him work at it. Yes, it would help. Sure. Yes, it would help. Are you a dentist? No. <laughs> I didn't hear you. No, no. Oh. I'm not a dentist. Your, your research... I gather you've been doing some research on something that... Uh, I'm... I'm uh, yes, I'm a researcher. Yeah. Is it it's going to help some um, common uh, difficulty that we all experience, I imagine. Uh... Yes, I should say it were and has. Well, is it, is it something as common as a... Uh, what's pretty common? A common cold? <laughs> uh, yes, I think it's as common as a common cold. Uh, we're getting into pretty obscure territory, <laughs> and I think you fellows have led yourself down the garden path. Shall we cut them off? Let's cut them off, because you're just wandering farther and farther. Faisy, it was your turn, but if you'll forgive me, I'll forfeit the money and tell you that he is a doctor of science in the scientific medicine from a scientific field. This is the famous Dr. Philo T. Farnsworth who invented electronic television. <laughs> Doctor, truthfully, are you sorry? Uh, no, no. I'm not well, sorry. it's up to you. I asked him the same question. He said sometimes. <laughs> he said sometimes. Uh, now, uh, he is, of course, the uh, technical director of Farnsworth Electronics Company in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And, and sir, how old were you when you invented uh, television, or, the, or the, the first television machine as we know it today, first television uh, system? I was 14. 14 years old. <laughs> as I understand it, sir, let me say, first of all, that when I heard I was going to meet Dr. Farnsworth tonight, I expected an old man with a long gray beard. I just couldn't believe it. Now, uh, I'd like to ask, ask you, there had been television sets of sorts before you came along, had there not been? Uh, yes, there had been uh, attempts to devise a television system using mechanical discs and rotating mirrors and vibrating mirrors. And but all mechanics, all, all me mirrors. All mechanical. And what was uh, your contribution? My contribution was to take out the moving parts and make the thing entirely electronic. And uh, that was the concept that I had when I was just a freshman in high school. He was the one who put electronics into television, which makes it possible for us to have whatever it is that we have now. And then, of course, as the machines developed, there were other people who made contributions, too. Oh, yes. Uh, there are literally thousands of 
uh, inventions important to television. How many patents do you hold, sir, in the television field? Uh, I or hold electronics field? something in excess of 165 American patents. 165 American patents. Let's go from the past, sir, the not too recent past, to the future. What are you working on now? Well, uh, in television, uh, we're attempting first to make better utilization of the bandwidth because we think we can eventually get uh, in excess of 2,000 lines instead of 525. We're, uh, uh, and do it on even narrower channel, uh, possibly, than we're doing the present uh, television. Which will make for a better picture. Make, a, picture. make for a much sharper picture. Then we hope, uh, we, we believe in the picture uh, frame type of a picture, where the, the uh, uh, visual display will be just a screen. Then we hope for a memory uh, so that the picture will be just as it was pasted on there. And many different kinds of, many improvements will result in the camera when you use such devices because there's uh, part of the, of the scene that you can remember and you practically have a memory file of it and um, will simplify production of it. He's then also working in nuclear fusion, which I, and, and some of the things he says that are going to happen, we're going to heat our homes, we're going to cool our homes, we will cook, we will run our automobiles, all transportation by nuclear fusion, and the future is unlimited. The truth? Well, electronics really uh, has had several uh, offspring uh, as a science and, in, and an art. One of them is nucleonics, and uh, in the field uh, that I, I'm essentially interested in now, or doing most of my work, is uh, the taming of the H-bomb, the uh, hydrogen fusion problem. Dr. Farnsworth, we could stand here for, sit here for many, many hours and talk. Most fascinating man I've met in many a long year. But unfortunately, television being what it is, it's your baby and we're out of time. So here are your Winston, sir, the money that you won. And our eternal gratitude, I'd be out of work if it weren't for you. Thank you very much. Philo Farnsworth always credited his wife, Pim, with playing a major role in helping him create electronic television. Pim Farnsworth passed away in 2006 at the age of 98. A few years earlier, I got to speak with her by phone in a brief radio interview. She told me about the struggles they had fighting big corporations like RCA, NBC, and the courts in marketing their invention. Now, uh, Mrs. Farnsworth, you, you married Philo in 1926? Right. At the time, were you aware that he had this obsession to create television as we know it today? Yes, he had told me about it. And uh, he had opened a whole new world to me <laughs> of science that I had no idea of. But I had such faith in him that if he said he could do it, I thought he could. Did you really think it was possible? I mean, Gene, in, back in the 1920s, uh, television was, was science fiction. That's right. And, uh, in fact, television was not a word yet. Electronics was not a word yet. Uh, the, uh, the science was uh, given a big boost when he started his work because he had a lot of new concepts that he had broken through in order to make television work. He didn't have a, a fancy uh, corporate laboratory like uh, a lot of the inventors were using at the time, people using uh, Westinghouse labs, RCA labs. Uh, uh, Philo was, was working in his garage. Well, at this time, he, he was working in a loft. And uh, we went into a bare loft, and he made a, a uh, he had a, 
a budget of $25,000. He told them he'd have a transmission within a year, and it was just sounded crazy to anyone who knew what was involved. But uh, he, he actually found more roadblocks than he expected, but he invented his way around those and was able to uh, produce a line picture two weeks within the year. What was it like to see those first images that he transmitted? It was, it was just, uh, well, the only one uh, there that had any engineering, uh, technical, I mean, uh, educational uh, training, had said that uh, I just, that it just doesn't seem possible to me. Well, when he saw this, he said, well, if I wasn't seeing it with my own two eyes, I wouldn't believe it, but uh, we were all just ecstatic, actually. Phil and my brother, who was his best friend, and I were the chief crew for nine months, and uh, then we got this other gentleman part-time and and a radio engineer to help with the amplifier, which was a big problem at that time. Everything else was uh, was fine. It was the amplifier that was holding us up. Now, basically, at, at what point did you create television as we know it today? Well, <clears throat> six months after he got his line picture, he had a two-dimensional picture, which was a... Uh, and uh, At first, it was a picture about an inch square, and by this time... He had a, uh, a picture about four inches square, and uh, it, it was, uh, while it was geometric figures, he was able to show his uh, backers a dollar sign because uh, one of them had said, kept saying, when are we going to see some dollars in this Farnsworth? <laughs> and this was the first time they saw it, and he put a slide in with a dollar sign on it, and that's what they saw. Philo didn't really have a, uh, a, a rigorous uh, electronics training, did he? I mean, it wasn't like he uh, went to MIT or had an advanced degree in electronics. He had uh, uh, dug this all out by himself through books in the libraries and the Bell Technical Journal and everything he could uh, come across. But he had photographic memory and a, a rapid reading ability so that he could scan books easily. Now, your first public demonstration was in 1934. That was at the Franklin Institute. And uh, at that time, uh, Phil had, go uh, had uh, gone to the patent office and said, look, we need a ruling on this because he wanted to finance his work by uh, licensing uh, other workers. And uh, RCA kept saying, well, Farnsworth didn't invent it, uh, Zorkin did. So he, uh, well, the, the ruling came out, or the patent office, a 48-page ruling that completely uh, uh, negated all of uh, Zorkin's claimed fame for a tube that he had tried to patent in 1923. 
it's amazing that uh, one uh, one man, a, a lone inventor, could actually come up with uh, something as technolo- technologically advanced as, as television and then take on the big guys like RCA. RCA was known as uh, being uh, uh, able to uh, browbeat uh, <laughs> inventors at the time. It's no secret there. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, he was able to project his ideas in himself uh, because... Uh, he had the truth. He knew he had the truth. He knew he could do it, and that came through to people. When we think of television, we don't really think of Philo Farnsworth. Unfortunately, we think of uh, David Sarnoff. We think of RCA Westing. You know all the big names. But we don't think of Philo Farnsworth. We know who invented the uh, electric light. We we think of Thomas Edison with that. We think of him with movies. But how come we don't think of Philo T. Farnsworth whenever we turn on that TV set? Well, because RCA's PR department was very active, and Phil used to say, historians will take care of this. We have too much to do for the future to worry about the past. And But I finally decided that I had to be that historian because uh, historians were taking their information from... Uh, things that RCA had put out. What do you think about the state of television today? Did it grow and develop the way you thought it would while you were working in the uh, in the loft? Technically, yes, but uh, it has lost uh, uh, a lot of its potential. Before he died, he said he was sorry he had anything to do with it and because of the programming. And uh, so I said think of all the paralyzed people can only maybe look to the ceiling they can see a television set and that's their window onto the world so you can't feel that way well when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon of course that picture was sent back by a miniature uh, camera tube his image dissector and he said this is what's made it all worthwhile Pim Farnsworth is often called the mother of television, who helped her husband Philo create TV as we know it today. Up next, do you want to create your own business? We'll get some advice from an expert right after this. You've heard those commercials where they speed up the announcer at the very end because they don't want you to know that the commercial is totally bogus. It's a ripoff and everything they said was false. You'll never hear that in a panoramic lifestyle t-shirt commercial because these are handcrafted quality t-shirts and that's the truth check them out at plclothing.store plclothing.store panoramic lifestyle clothing a vision that moves in all directions you are listening to the ken robinson podcast with hall of fame broadcaster ken robinson I'm Ken Robinson, and you may be like many people who have a great idea for a business but don't know how to start. Well, let's get some advice from Cheryl Broussard. She's an award-winning author, writer, producer, and motivational speaker, a leading expert on business and personal finance, and CEO of Cheryl Broussard & Company. Cheryl has written several bestsellers, including Sister CEO, What's Money Got to Do With It?, How to Make Love and Money Work in Your Relationship, Smart Ways to Take Charge of Your Money, Build Wealth and Achieve Financial Security. Cheryl, you own your own money management advisory firm, 
Many women may want to follow in your footsteps and start their own company, but some will say, that's too complicated. Starting a business is too hard, and they don't think they can do it. And I would say, well, maybe you can. And uh, yes, you can. Or I would say, you know, if you came to me and said, you know, you wanted to, or you, if you had experience or expertise in the area of finance or math, I would say, yes, you can do it. In fact, it's really quite simple. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of getting a plan together and going out there, finding clients, uh, putting a business plan together mm-hmm. so that you're focused and you know what it is you're trying to achieve, and you can do it. I won't say it's easy. You know, it does take time. It mm-hmm. takes a lot of patience, a lot of perseverance, but it can be done. And mm-hmm. that's pretty much why I wrote this book, because I want to show women out there today that it can be done and that you can start on a small basis and grow very slowly to a nice large company mm-hmm. eventually. Now, was that a dream of yours to... Uh open a money management firm, or was it just to go into business in a general sense? Go into business in a general sense. Uh, I've always had an interest in money and finance. Uh, That was one of my interests I did have. And I knew, though, deep down in my heart that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I always had that entrepreneurial spirit in my blood, Mm -hmm. even when I was a little girl. So I knew when I started working for Corporate America that eventually I would go out on my own. And I, it took me about six years after I left uh, Dean Witter and began my own company. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're talking to Cheryl Broussard, who's author of the book Sister CEO, The Black Woman's Guide to Starting Your Own Business, published by Viking. Is it, is it more difficult for a black woman to start a business than, let's say, a black man or even a white male or female? Oh, yes, of course, it, it, it still is. Uh, more difficult in that access to capital. I mean, everyone has trouble with getting money when you want to start a business, whether no matter what color you are or what gender you are. But even more so, though, for black women, because, number one, there are not that many black women. At least we don't see, bankers don't see that many black women out there starting these businesses, and they don't hear or see any success stories. So if you know, someone were to walk in, it's hard for them to believe that they could ever be successful, so therefore they tend to turn them down more. Mm -hmm. So that's still out there, uh, unfortunately. It is somewhat changing. Um, There are a lot of cities and the SBA, they're developing programs to try to help more women and um, women of color to get involved in small business. They're trying to um, teach them how to write a business plan. They're trying to teach them the way to, to go. And so, I, you know, again, I think it's changing, but it's still harder, though, mm-hmm. for black women to get a business going uh, through traditional means. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned the, the, the bank, and I keep picturing this horror story. You know, a, a woman walks into a bank to seek financing, you know, the banker there with the pinstripe suit, suit and the cigar, and he, you want to start what? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but there is that fear. We, we do have a fear of bankers, and, and bankers can be very intimidating. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I have a great story to tell you because in the book I have a number of women who have their own businesses, and one of the women, uh, Catherine Hughes out of Maryland, who owns radio stations um, throughout the country, mm. um, was trying to get a loan for a bank for a, her from a bank for her radio sh- station mm-hmm. to get her first radio station and what happened she ended up going to 32 bankers all men and everyone turned her down and just, mm-hmm. she had a wonderful business plan in her hand but what happened on the 33rd try she met a female banker her first day on the job and she gave her the loan 
So after the 33rd try, <laughs> she gave her the money to get her to buy her first radio station. And, you know, I asked myself, I said, gee, how many of us would have, you know, kept at it for 33 times? I, I, mean, I can even <laughs> imagine, you know, five times, you know, someone yeah. probably would have given up. So and if she had quit during the 32nd time, she wouldn't have made it. That's right. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the traits it takes is, you know, being persistent and willing to follow your dreams and to follow your passion. Mm-hmm. Well, well, how do you start? Sometimes just the thought of op- opening up uh, or starting your own business can be very intimidating. Mm-hmm. Y- you think all, all of the things I have to do, the, the tax laws and the rules and the regulations, and, and as a, a, a former small business owner myself, just dealing with the tax you know, situation can be uh, very, very frightening. Yes, it is. And I try not to scare anyone away from it. Yes, you're right, it is a daunting task, and there's a lot of information out there that you need to do your homework and you need to do your, you know, read up on and make sure you understand what the laws are and how all that all fits into your business. Uh, in my book, I cover all of that, and it's, you know, through A through Z. I talk about, um, number one, selecting the type of business for you. I mean, how do you know what kind of business you should start? Mm-hmm. And uh, a good question to ask yourself is, you know, if uh, I only had six months to live, on, to live, what would I really want to do? Mm-hmm. And you write those little ideas down, maybe a 50 or 100 ideas of all the things you would love to do if you could had all the money in the world to do. And oftentimes that will lead you to what your special interest or your traits are. And you kind of narrow that down. And then once you get narrowed down, then you do your homework. And you look and you research the business. You talk to other people who have maybe similar type businesses in the area or even outside of the area, in fact, because people are more prone to talk with you, <laughs> if you they, knowing that you're not from the same area and you're not going to become their competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another way. Doing your homework, though, is so important. Talking to accountants, talking to attorneys. You know, and A lot of us have friends who are willing to share information without charging us any money. Mm-hmm. And so don't be afraid to ask. Tell them that, you know, I want to start a business. I'm thinking about doing this. What do you suggest? Are there any books you suggest I should read? Go to your library. The library is wonderful source of free information. The SBA is another wonderful source of free information. It's out there. It's just that we have to take action and go out there and look for it mm-hmm. and and look for the opportunities. But and you're right. It is a daunting task, but it's okay and it's not going to be easy. If it were easy, everybody would be doing it. <laughs> That's true. And so if you have an idea, you know, follow through on it and don't be afraid to take that risk. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> um, um, what about uh, associations, groups? Uh, uh, are they good to join, to, to get to know people who maybe have started businesses? Oh, yes. In fact, there, I have a chapter in the book on networking and uh, talk, again, that's that sharing ideas. I mean, and that's been happening in the Old Boys Network for a very long time where they share information. And uh, that's how oftentimes men get loans for their business because they have banker friends and they'll say, oh, you know, I know John over here and he's interested in giving out some money for, you know, a small business. And so we need to begin doing more of that. And that's what you'll get when you begin to join organizations and associations. You'll begin to network with people. You tell people about your business. You share with them what it is you're trying to do. And if even if they can't help you, they might be able to point you in the right direction to somebody who can help you. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, networking organizations are truly important. When you come up with a great idea, you can always find 10 people that will tell you, no, it won't work. You shouldn't do it. You're wasting your time. How do you combat 
those negative forces that are always out there? That's a really good question. In fact, if you have 10 people telling you it won't work, it, it, it will work. And you will probably be very, very successful. Uh, so you should really, really do it if that's the case. You know, you really have to tune them out. It's unfortunate there are a lot of people out there who will try to uh, put limitations on yourself. You know, they have limitations on themselves, and they don't want to see you get ahead. And that's that will be, and in, in, in not unfortunately, you will have to deal with it, and you mm-hmm. have to tune them out, and and hang out with more optimistic people. You know, those who look at the glass half full instead of <laughs> half empty. You know, we have enough negativity in our world already, so we don't need to hang around with those folks. So that's what you're going to have to do: tune them out. Um, begin to associate with more positive people, you know, if you can. Um, and again, that's where the associations and the organizations come in, mm-hmm. because especially if these are people who are like you or like-minded like you, they want to start a business or, you know, they, they're uh, looking at self-improvement. And so these are people you want to hang out with. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're out there. Just look for them. Yeah. And the naysayers, just say, I don't want to hear this. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good way to put it. Absolutely. Good way to put it. Now, what are some of the hot businesses that black women are getting involved in these days? Well, health is one, uh, one, one big issue, uh, one big uh, industry, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of women today are unfortunately overweight and so they are looking for ways to lose weight and so that's a very big industry mm. the beauty care industry is still hot among african-american women the nail and beauty business that's a hot industry mm-hmm. uh, the clothing business is very very big <laughs> but for people in my book we have some non-traditional ones such as the computer business the internet i mean wonderful opportunities today for people who are uh well-versed with computers and the internet uh, and working on the web and marketing on the web. In fact, if you have a mm-hmm. business, you know, you can make a wonderful, um, some wonderful money just by selling your service or your product over the internet. Mm. So it's a great opportunity. You can make money off computers instead of computers making. Absolutely. Computers are often a drain on the family budget, but you can make that money back. Right. There's a great article, article that came out in Success Magazine, December issue, about how to, it says, what is it, it's called, uh, how to make millions at home. And mm-hmm. it, one of the articles talks about making money on the web. And there was a gentleman in the article who owned a bookstore on the web. He didn't have a, a you know, a real bookstore. We had an official, um, but a office in his home selling books on the internet. Wow. And his first year, it said his first year he did $17 million. So can Jeez. you imagine? Yeah. So there's opportunities out there. In fact, when I was in another city, um, St. Louis, a black woman, someone in the audience knew of a woman, a black woman mm-hmm. who has an import export business on the internet and she's made 200,000 her first year. Mm. So the you know again the wow. the web is important the computers are important um a, non-traditional I have another lady in the book who sells compression wear which are garments g- underwear compression wear gar- underwear mm-hmm. for people who have plastic surgery oh. liposuction plastic um maybe a facelift and you know, non-traditional business and you know and she's actually the manufacturer of it she makes them uh, out of her ho- uh, had started off in her home mm-hmm. with uh, industrial sewing machines in her home. <laughs> now she has this huge business, and they're close to $2 million, and only been in business for about six or seven years. Jeez. But uh, selling to physicians out there, you know. And it's just amazing. I mean, there's so many in, uh, different types of businesses that you can start. Um, well, that's the, the wonderful thing about, about your book is that it has success stories in it. 
And, and those are, we don't get those very often, especially in the African-American community we're, we're accustomed to, and we often expect to hear tales of woe. Right. And sometimes we like to, to wallow in those <laughs> tales yes, of do. woe. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a, a, a positive way people can turn things around and, and, and get their lives going in the direction they want to take it. Right, and that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want it to just to be in how-to. I really wanted to show what, how the women did it and the ups and downs that they went through. Because oftentimes when you hear success stories, you always see the end product and you don't see how they got to that point. Mm -hmm. And people need to know that there are ups and downs, there are definitely challenges, there's obstacles that will be put in your way. But when you're focused, you have a plan, you know what it is you want, you have that vision, and you keep that vision in front of you, you see the big picture. But but just do it. Just do it. Get out there and do it. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> Great advice from Cheryl Broussard, award-winning author, writer, producer, and motivational speaker. She's a leading expert on business and personal finance and CEO of Cheryl Broussard & Company. Well, I hope you found this podcast interesting and informative. Just a reminder, our music was created by H Beats, who always makes us sound so good. That's H Beats with a Z. You can find him at hbeats330 at gmail.com. Hey, tell your friends about this podcast and feel free to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.